Hey, South Bend City Church, Mariah here, the Director of Art and Worship. We hope that you've had a wonderful holiday season, and as much as we wish that, we also are so thankful to be back together as a community. This week, we started a three-week series on money. New year, same old money problems. At least that's how a lot of us feel. Anxiety, fear, and shame characterize the relationship that so many of us have with money, but there are other possibilities for our relationship with it. We're taking these three weeks to talk about money problems, money plans, and money possibilities. Before we get there, though, a couple updates in the life of our church. You'll hear Jason mention the new to South Bend City Church table coming up on February 5th. If you're in the South Bend area, we would love for you to join us in person for this table. However, I just wanted to let our long-distance community members know that same as the last time we held one of these in person, we will follow it up with a digital option as well. So keep your eyes out for that. We also took this time to update our community on our general church finances, the Tribune Project, and the Christmas offering. So you'll hear that here at the beginning of the episode, and if you want to jump to the sermon, that timestamp will be in the show notes below. South Bend City Church, we're so thankful that you chose to join us today, and we're even more grateful that you choose to be a part of our community. Let's join in with the rest of our community now. Hey, Happy New Year. Welcome back. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here, and like Mariah said, it's good to be back together. Uh, We took a break uh, longer than we thought because we thought we were going to have Christmas Eve, and then Indiana happened, which is to say weather happened. Um, Thank you, though. Uh, We're a church that wants to be serious about living out the things we've said, and we've said from the very beginning that we believe uh, that life with God and with one another operates more like life in the field than life in the factory. And anybody who's done life in the field and the sort of ecological life of living things knows that we need periods of work and output and periods of rest and things need to be left to life fallow for seasons. And we don't want to just preach that at each other for our individual lives. We want to live that in our communal life. So for us to take the break wasn't just to take a couple of weeks off. It was specifically to invest ourselves in one of the things that we've said from the very beginning. However, I do know that when we do that, it means we don't have Sunday gatherings and you might miss that. This might be a space where you find um, a lot of connection or support. So we know there's a cost to it, but we actually think there's a greater cost if we don't have integrity with that value that we preached, which is why we did it. So thank you for that. Uh, We also had brunch tables last week, like Mariah mentioned. Uh, Thanks to all the hosts who opened up homes or made restaurant reservations for that. Uh, I know some of you did show up at the building last week. I'm sorry, I know that's not a good feeling to show up in a cold, dark, empty parking lot on a Sunday morning. We totally get that. Uh, one point that I will make, uh, we, we try really hard to communicate. Communication has gotten harder than ever because I don't know if you know this, but some of your fellow churchgoers don't attend every week. <laughs> not you, but some of them sometimes miss announcements, even though we say it up here and we put it on social media and on the website. Uh, but one thing I want to point out, like if there's one way to make sure that you stay in the loop, it's text updates. So if you've missed that, just go to the website anytime you want, scroll down to what's happening, and there's a link in that carousel for signing up for text updates. And we promise we won't spam you, but when there's something important that applies to the whole church life, we're going to let you know through texting. That's one more way to stay in the loop. That's, uh, that's like my, my pitch for the new year as we do life together. Cool? Awesome. Uh, another chance coming up for us to connect is a new to SBCC table coming up on February 5th. 
So uh, this is for anybody who's new here, but you can define new however you want. Maybe it's your first Sunday today, or maybe you've been coming for a while, but you feel like you've just sort of been on the periphery and you want to get a bit more connected, or you want to ask some questions. We'd love to welcome you. We're going to share a meal after the 11 a.m. gathering on February 5th, right upstairs. Uh, this is a chance to get to know you a little bit and for you to get to know our team a little bit. We'll hear your story. We'll talk about our staff roles and how we came to be a part of this, and we'll answer any questions that you may have about anything in our life together, whether it's how to get plugged in or why we do things the way that we do things or anything else on your mind. If you want to be a part of that, just go to the website on that same What's Happening carousel. You'll find a link there to sign up, and then we'll be sure that we have food and a seat for you at our new to SBCC table on February 5th. Uh, one other area of church life uh, that we want to share with you today, and this is us living up to a promise that we made, uh, I guess, a little over a year ago now, which is uh, we want to be really good about uh, transparency and gratitude when it comes to finances. And so we promised a while ago that every quarter we'd give you a really clear update on where the basic finances are at in the church, which means some of you are on the edge of your seat and others are about to take a nap. That's fine. Uh, but we, we really owe it to this community to share this information. So this is kind of a new pattern for us in the past year, and we want to uh, keep that going today. So to help me do that, please welcome our executive pastor, Matt Grable. This is very exciting, Matt. Very, very exciting. This is thrilling. Thrilling, yeah. So before we get into it, uh, a note for some of you, in case this is uh, confusing, our fiscal year operates from July 1st to the end of June, which means that on December 31st, we were halfway through our fiscal year. So the regular budget numbers that we're going to show you are half of the year, six months, right? That's right. Let's put that on the yeah. screen. And another point, just yeah. because I think it's helpful, um, in rock climbing, there's kind of this thought that you need, for safety reasons, you need to have two points of contact with the rock that you're, that you're actually climbing, right? Otherwise, if you just have one, you're, you're done. Uh, so likewise, with, with finances, we have uh, always have two or more points of contact in terms of working with numbers. We have our board, we have staff uh, that are working through this. So just so you know, this isn't just me or this isn't just me and Jason that are working through these numbers. We have multiple eyes on this, and every dollar that you give to South Bend City Church has a direction of where it goes, and so we really want to honor that. So this is from our general fund. Uh, so general fund year to date, which again is July 1st through December 31st, uh, $356,481. Uh, to give a little context to that number, our budget is made up of uh, three areas. Uh, ministry, um, multiple ministries that happen kind of in the life of our church, and then personnel, and then operational costs. So that's, that's what makes up our general general fund. Um, our general fund compared to past years, this is definitely lower than past years um, that we've seen. Um, we needed to make the adjustment back in July when we were making our budget to actually look at all three of those areas and make some significant cuts that were really painful, um, both in ministry and operational, but then also in personnel. Um, and so we needed to lay off two of our full-time staff people, Ryan and Amanda, which was really difficult. But then you'll see in budgeted expenditures, um, one of the reasons that uh, there's a difference between the actual expenditures and budget, uh, we were really committed to paying the severance for three and a half months to those uh, two full-time employees, not only their, their salary, but their health insurance benefits. So that's why it's a little bit higher uh, in that range. And there's also some things that hit in the first half of the year that don't hit in the second half of the year. So a little bit under from our general fund giving, um, keeping an eye on that, but we really feel like we've right-sized the budget for this year um, moving forward. Yeah, it's a little more um, 
uh, flesh on that. So again, there's some gaps on those numbers, but uh, a large part of that goes back to spending that went through the end of November, but that's no longer being spent. And so when we look at the kind of revolving averages of giving and spending, we actually feel really um, thankful that things seem to be kind of right size now based on the resources that we have to work with going forward. Obviously, we keep an eye on that. And we don't rest on our laurels, but things look like they're about the way they ought to be now. Yeah, and we've, we've also realized that that's not like particular to our community as we've talked with other churches and other nonprofits from around the country. A lot of churches are experiencing the same thing. Um, that actually finances is actually a lagging indicator from COVID, that it's actually gone down in terms of uh, giving has gone down after COVID. Mm -hmm. It stayed really strong during COVID. Some of that was because of stimulus money. Some of that was people just saying, hey, let's just get through this. Uh, and now we're, we've seen a, a dip. So we feel like we've right-sized, um, but that's just not particular to South Bend City Church. That's, that's pretty common in most churches here. That's right. So this is general fund, but general fund's not the full picture on the generosity of this community. And we want to sort of pan out now and show you a picture of the kind of total financial generosity of South and City Church in the last six months. So this includes general fund, Tribune project. This includes the care fund, the foster and adoption support fund, and any money that's been given to anything through South and City Church. Uh, the total number for that six months is $690,000, which is just an incredible show of generosity from this church. Yeah, it's really remarkable. This is like the most that's ever been given to South Bend City Church um, in, in a year. Uh, or in a half year. In, in a half year. Yeah. This, is, this is really remarkable. And then we put up some of these other stats. We, we don't uh, ever sit around in meetings and say, hey, how do we grow South Bend City Church from an attendance perspective? But like finances, it's something we keep an eye on. And so our average attendance for 20, uh, uh, 2022 is 318, which I just think is really remarkable in, in terms of the total numbers of donors giving to South Bend City Church is 266. Um, that's, uh, that's 318 individuals, but oftentimes donors, that's, that's a giving unit. And so I just think the generosity of this community is really remarkable. I just want to say thank you for that. Yeah, yeah, I know you might think of your significant other or your family as like a family or a marriage. We just call you giving units. You're a donor unit. No, I'm just kidding. I actually hate that term. I just don't know how else to describe it. But to the point, right? Yeah. It's, it's like right now in the room, if there's 150 people, there might be 75 giving units. Forgive me. So to see that kind of participation, we're really thankful for that, and we want to celebrate that. And a lot of people that are, like, reoccurring um, donors as well that set it up. So, yeah. like, that's something that helps us track, uh, yeah, how are we doing and what, what we can plan in the future. Yeah, Matt, can you also draw a little more attention? Inside that big number includes the CARE Fund. CARE is one of those things that operates quietly at South and City Church. People give to that fund, and then we distribute money from that fund for a lot of needs that show up. But we don't often like, make a big show of it because we want to protect the dignity of those stories. And they don't always uh, tend to be the kind of stories that need to be blasted because it's about people's lives. But the CARE Fund's a part of that, and that's a way that people have shown up. Yeah, so it's, I mean, we've been able to help people um, with rental assistance, mortgage assistance, uh, medical bills, um, car issues when, when people in this community have landed on a hard time. And again, we don't want to exploit those stories. That's not the point. The point is this community coming together to actually care for people um, that are falling on a rough time. And because of your generosity, they're able to make it through, um, you know, another month to where they're able to find a job and get back to, to paying their mortgage or rent on time. And um, just know that... Uh, 
just on the other side of that care, people are just super grateful yeah. for the generosity of this community. That's right. Um, now let's uh, focus on the Tribune project for a minute. Uh, this is our effort. We've already purchased the building, but to purchase and renovate the future home of Southland City Church and to turn that building into a place for community work all week long. These numbers are not six-month numbers. These are total numbers on the project as far as commitments and giving. But Matt, talk us through this. Yeah, so total given uh, by our community here, one million. Uh, $43,735.54, which is really amazing. Um, yeah. yeah, that's yeah. huge. Yeah, like, that's you amazing. can clap for that, for sure. Um, by 210 individuals uh, pledged is $1,768,466. Um, and then between uh, one-time gifts and grants, uh, that's over $1.8 which is really remarkable. Yeah. Um, uh, towards this project, and be between that and the loan, we, we shared an update a little while ago about how um, between uh, construction costs increase uh, and needing to move a lot of the demolition of the tribute project to phase one, the cost is substantially higher than, we, than was originally estimated by our contractor. Um, we were able to actually go back with our contractor and adjust some of those floor plans um, also, we saw some increased generosity from this community. And with that, we actually were able to make a match to where we're able to actually move ahead with the project. Um, one caveat to that is our fundraising timeline between last April and this coming April, or I guess two Aprils yeah. ago, with a two-year uh, commitment that ends in April. Um, uh, we just want to make sure we were able to like bridge that gap between when we would move into the building and actually be able to actually pay the contractor for the work. So we're working with our bank on a bridge loan uh, there, but it's really exciting to know that we actually have the amount of money between the loan and what's been pledged to actually move forward with this, this project. Yeah. Um, that puts a timeline potentially uh, to be able to move in by September of next year. Yeah, uh, we'll talk about one more point on that timeline, but just to be really sharp on that. So when we move into the building, we have to have paid for all of it, right? Like the contractor's not gonna just like float us for six months while we keep collecting the giving. And I don't know about you, but like I know my commitment to the Tribune Project, I, I don't, I'm not sitting on like a massive asset pile. I don't know if you knew that about me. So like my commitment was me looking at my monthly budget and kind of figuring out what I could give monthly over 24 months. And that's how I came up with my big number. And that's a lot of us here at South and City Church, right? So I fulfill my commitment by being faithful through the end of April, 2024 but we move in fall 2023, and that's the gap. The bridge loan would be a short-term measure that we would pay off with what's given in that last six months or so so that we can you know, pay everybody what they need and be in our home, and then at the end of all of this, still end up with just the basic mortgage that we said was gonna be the cap on our long-term lending. Does that all make sense? Cool, oh, all right. Um, yeah. Now, tell us more about that timeline, though, the gap between like our lease here and- Yeah, so it might raise a question, so our, our lease, ends here in June. We've been told we can no longer stay in this space after June. There's another tenant that's coming in. Uh, we work with our landlord and that tenant about potentially being able to go month to month in a limited time perspective, like one day a week. Uh, we're still working on that. We're also talking to a few other churches that are right near the Tribune area about potentially sharing space, that they might have some space that we can share. We're looking at some other larger facilities that we could kind of be nomadic for a while. But if you have any other points of connection that way, I would love to connect with you about that just because we're looking at a gap between probably June and September of uh, this year. Last piece in the financial picture, just a couple of 
sort of other generosities that have been a part of our life together, which is the Christmas offering and the Boys and Girls Club. On the Christmas offering, a reminder, uh, this goes toward a few objectives. One is to sort of resupply our general fund, which was drawn down to some of those promises that we made last year that we wanted to follow through on. Uh, it also goes toward a couple of causes right here in the city of South Bend, including resourcing a position for DTSB Incorporated uh, around outreach to our unhoused neighbors in downtown South Bend, and uh, refugee assistance for the team in our church that walks with refugee families. And then lastly, Redeemer Central over in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Uh, we can help them have heat through the winter, not just for their church gatherings, but also for asylum seekers who meet in their space during the week. So everything given so far is $38,193. That's amazing, because during that same month of December, a lot of you were also giving to the Tribune Project and the General Fund and the CARE Fund and the Foster and Adoption Support Fund, so thank you for that. However, we know that often uh, people wait till Christmas Eve to make their gift and they like to bring it in person. And then we lost Christmas Eve. So we're gonna keep this open through the end of this week. If you still wanna give to the Christmas offering, just write Christmas on your check and drop it in the Dropbox or go online and select the Christmas fund. Uh, Matt, what's the Boys and Girls Club doing up here? Yeah, so Studebaker Talks, you might be familiar with Studebaker Talks where we kind of highlighted this, the, the stories and innovation that's happening here in South Bend. Um, all the money that was generated from that combined with some budgeted dollars that we had towards putting that event on, we were able to donate uh, $3,410.53 to the Boys and Girl Club, which is doing an amazing job here in South Bend. So again, not only does uh, we want to be a community that actually flourishes here, we also want to be able to highlight and cheer on communities and partners that are doing that in the city as well. So really excited about that. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, before Matt goes, I just want to call out and celebrate um, both like the finances in general, which have been especially complicated through the pandemic and the building project. And then also the building project. Um, we have a bulldog on staff named Matt Grable who has just worked incredibly hard and with great wisdom and passion to navigate really complicated and like uphill battles on some of these fronts. And we are where we are today for a lot of reasons, but one of the big ones is Matt Grable. So will you guys say thank you to Matt? Thanks, Matt. Thanks. Nice. Thank you for sitting through the money talk. I have good news. It's not done yet. Uh, we're gonna talk about money today. Not really church money, just money. Uh, we've never really done that as a church, and yet, I don't know about you, I know it's a significant part of my life. Uh, it's a place where things are sometimes great and sometimes awful. It's a place where anxiety lives. It also happens to be a thing that Jesus talks about a fair amount, and we feel like we should probably fix the fact that we've not talked much about it. It's the new year. I don't know if you're facing new financial challenges or new financial possibilities. I don't know if you know, turning the page on the calendar means a new budget for you or not. But we thought, what if we took uh, three weeks, this Sunday and for the next two Sundays, and talked a little bit about money? Uh, we're kind of putting a pause on our series on the Apostles' Creed, which we began back in the fall and like, walked through all the way through Advent. We're going to pick that up a little bit later this spring. Uh, but we're going to hang out here with money for a little bit. And I recognize that can be complicated for people in general and especially in church. So before I even get into it today, let's just air this out a little bit. First question. When I, t when I tell you that we're going like, to talk about like, money in church, does anybody have any baggage around church and money? Raise your hand. Anybody? Most of the room, baggage around church and money. Cool. How about this one? In general, does anybody on any level of frequency at any point in your regular life, at, in the season that you're in right now, ever find yourself having any anxiety related to money? Most of the room. Okay. Interesting. Uh, how about this one? 
Has anybody had a moment in your life, in your personal history, where you actually didn't know how you were going to pay the bills? Yeah, that's most of the room. But can you keep those hands up? Because I feel like this is one of those ones that can cause a lot of shame. But, like, look around. Uh, you're not alone if that's you, right? Um, how about this one? Has anybody ever had relationship conflict related to money? Yeah. <laughs> nice. Good. Just let it out. Just let it all out. That's good. That's good. Um, uh, has any, here's one for you. Be honest now. Has anybody actually thought about and perhaps even like outlined with numbers how you would spend the lottery winnings? Yeah, look at you all. I'm raising my hand too. I have a note in my phone. I won't show it to you, but I have a note in my phone. That's great. Um, last one. Uh, this is just from the heart. Has anybody ever felt like a feeling of shame around money stuff in your life? Yeah, same. Same here. Yeah, okay, there's a, there's a lot going on there, right? Which might be the reason that we haven't talked about it because we, we want to be tender and thoughtful about all of those complicated feelings. But that's actually a failure point for, for me and, and for us as a church because the point isn't to avoid the hard things. The point is to approach them with as much care and wisdom as we can, and we want to do that. When I tell you uh, that we're going to talk about money as a church for the next few weeks, um, anybody want to put a few words on how you feel? Anybody want to just like say what you're feeling right now when I tell you that? Yes, sir. So for me, uh, growing up, like there's been a lot of times where I had just lump, like lump sums of money. Mm -hmm. My dad had uh, once, uh, disability, mm -hmm. and so they back paid this, back paid me, lump sum of money. College, refund check, lump sum of money. Yeah. Uh, let me get that far. Kevin was just saying in a lot of seasons of life, both with your dad on disability and like as a college student, there was like lump sum money, whether it was disability pay for your dad that came in the form of back pay, lump sum drops in or like a refund or something like that. And, and often it got squandered. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So you're saying often like your dad said, let me take the sum and I'll, I'll handle it for you. And you thought, no, I want to manage this. But if your dad would have actually like walked you through the why and the how of it, you would have been better set up for it, right? Kevin was saying there's, uh, there's still insecurity there. Kevin and Montessi just bought a house. Kevin and Montessi were up here on our stage not too long ago. And the day after you were on our stage, you'd lost your job. And then you got a new job. Awesome. But there's like that lag between the first day on the job and the first paycheck. So there's still like you're behind and you're feeling some of that insecurity. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. 
Kevin was saying, try to not let that shame and guilt from the past come into the present, but make good plans now for now in the future without letting that past overshadow you, right? That's good, man. I feel like a lot of us probably relate to all of that. The not happy with where it's been, but trying to like get better on it now. Yeah. Uh, that's really helpful, man. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that and run with it. So um, I don't know how you, if you all like, feel this way, but if I were to ask you, like, 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 how do you actually think of money? I think a lot of us probably, one of the ways we think about it is that money is a solution, right? Now, I'm not saying that's bad. In fact, you know, money, money is a solution. You know what money is a solution to? Money problems. Yeah, if the problem you have is financial, money can probably fix it. That's absolutely true. And everything that we're going to say about money in the next few weeks is not assuming that money is just inherently bad. But I do want to argue that there are other ways to think of it besides money as a solution. And here I'm going to turn toward Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount specifically. Jesus talks a lot about money. And when you listen to what Jesus says about money, he has other interesting things to say about it. And one of the ways I, I understand what Jesus is saying is that money may not always be a solution. Sometimes money is a symptom. Or perhaps this, sometimes our relationship with money, the feelings that come up around money, the way we interact with money, it may be a symptom of something else that's going on in us or around us. Let me show you where Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 6. This is from the Sermon on the Mount that we looked at last year for quite a while. Jesus says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy for where th and where thieves do not break in and steal. Here's the line. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now in Matthew 6, you're in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. This is three chapters in Matthew where Jesus is saying over and over again, God wants to actually give God's life to you and live God's life through you. And everything in the Sermon on the Mount isn't just like some plucked apart random bit of wisdom. Every bit of this treatise for three chapters is Jesus trying to work out and explain to us and inspire us and evoke us to live the life that God wants to live in us and through us. And then right in the middle, smack dab in the middle of that sermon about God wanting to give God's life to us and live God's life through us, Jesus talks about our treasuring, our investing, like where we stake ourselves out, which of course includes all of the money stuff going on in our lives. And he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now watch this. That, that could feel like indicting. That could feel condemning. But it could be really helpful. Here's the way I've become, become, uh, found myself thinking about this. We so often have such a hard time knowing our own hearts. I mean, like, have you ever, like, been surprised to find out what was going on inside, only to know that it was actually going on there for quite a while? Have you ever had that going on in a relationship, in your, like, in your mental health, in your life with God? There's all this inner stuff that we carry, whether we name it or not, whether we say it or not, whether we see it or not, all this inner stuff that we carry— and Jesus says that like the treasuring that we do, the investing that we do, which of course includes the actual spending that we do, the way that our money gets played out in the world, that that's an indicator of what's going on internally. Now that can be really useful, especially if you and I just agree right now that we're not going to let shame be part of this conversation. Because like, shame is not really helpful in this. If you take this teaching and you run with it, and then you look at the way that you're spending or the way that you're relating to money. And if you've decided in advance that shame is permissible in your life, which I think you should not decide. I think you should just say that's not helpful in any way. If you just sort of take that off the table, then what you're left with is the chance to get curious. Like, what, what am I learning about my own heart, my own inner world, based on the treasuring that I do? which of course includes the budgeting and spending patterns in my life, right? 
Money can be a solution, absolutely. Money can be a useful tool in the world, but money can also be a symptom. It can be a, a manifestation, an externalizing of something going on inside. And the gift there is that you could actually get curious and learn a little something about what's going on inside. You guys realize symptoms are gifts? You know, the only thing worse than being sick and having symptoms is being sick and not having symptoms. Do you know that? Right? What happens when you're sick and you don't have symptoms? Well, you may not know about it. You may not treat it. You may not be dealing with it. You may not be managing it well. And you might even be spreading it. Right? If you're sick and you don't have symptoms, that's far worse than being sick and having symptoms because symptoms are the body's way of saying, hey, pay attention to this. Do something about this. Deal with this. Confront this. Manage this. Seek help for this. Try to figure this thing out. Symptoms are a gift. And Jesus seems to be saying that like, the inner life of the heart can be, can be showing up in the treasuring, the investing, the staking that we do, and our money is certainly a part of that. Now, I also want to call out that the things that are happening in our financial lives and our relationship with money it might be a symptom of like your individual heart and what's going on there. And we're going to talk more about that in the next couple of minutes. It might also be a symptom of the system that you live in. Because treasuring isn't just something that individuals do. It's also something that societies do. And economic structures do their own kind of treasuring. Tax structures do their own kind of treasuring. We live in an economy that has all kinds of hierarchies of treasuring. And some of what you're bumping into financially, it might be less a consequence of your own heart, less a symptom of what's going on in your own heart. And it might actually be a, a, system, a, a symptom or a consequence of the treasuring that we have done together as a society and the non-treasuring that we have done together as a society. As we've decided certain people and certain communities are more valuable than others and certain kinds of uh, effort, or like, like there's a lot there. Here's the only thing though. I don't have time to preach the whole thing on the system and the whole thing on the heart today. The next couple of weeks, we're going to primarily hang out at the level of your personal experience, but I don't want that to be a blind spot or to suggest that there aren't other things going on. It's just that the team won't give me 90 minutes a Sunday to preach. <laughs> so any given Sunday, like a lot of the things that we talk about, there's a dynamic of the soul and a dynamic of the system at stake, but we don't always have time to work on all of that. And for these three weeks, I just know that a lot of us right in our personal lives, in the actual lives we are living, are trying to figure out what to do with the money thing and how the faith thing fits into the money thing. And so that's why we're kind of narrowing our focus. But I don't want that to sound like we don't realize that there are also systemic things going on here, right? Um, if it's true, though, that treasuring and heart are connected, that investing and heart are connected, that budgeting and heart are connected, that whatever you feel around your money is a symptom or a sign of what's going on inside, and if you get rid of the shame, you could just get curious. And through that curiosity, you might discover like family patterns that you've inherited, anxieties that you are carrying that are deep and existential. And, and they really have to do with that, that human thing that we all wrestle with, which is like wondering at the heart of the universe, whatever the universe is, whoever God is, is, is that for us or against us? Are we really all out here on our own? Or do we find our lives held by love, by a benevolence. These are the deep kind of anxious questions and energies that might happen to be showing up in your relationship with your money. Jesus says, um, not only the, the things that we just read, it's interesting, he stacks together a few ideas. And if you read the Sermon on the Mount, assuming that these are just random things flung together, you'll read it one way. If you read them, assuming that this is a genius teacher 
who knew exactly what he was doing, you're going to read them differently, and you're going to start to see some unexpected connections. Watch the strange thing that Jesus does next after he talks about treasuring and the heart. He says this, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Huh? Like, that's a strange sort of move to make, right? He was talking about uh, treasuring and heart, and then he goes on to this whole, like, eye metaphor. Now, one of the reasons this is a challenging metaphor for us it has to do with Bible translation. But I'm going to try to explain this to you, because once you hear this, I think you'll see how the first thing Jesus said about treasuring and heart is directly connected to the next thing he said. He's kind of working from the inner to the outer. He's, he's working from um, what's going on all the way down here to the way it affects our vision of the world. So he's talking here about, like, a bad eye or a darkened eye. I. And the problem here is in Matthew 6, most translations of the Bible translate this fairly literally. But there are other passages earlier in Scripture that, that are the context for this passage that are almost never translated literally. Specifically in the book of Deuteronomy and in the book of Proverbs, we have this uh, sort of ancient idiom. This is a, like a figure of speech in the ancient world that speaks specifically of a bad or evil eye. You can read this again in Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter 25 in the book of Pro or 15 and a couple of places in Proverbs. But the problem is, back in those books of the Bible, the translators understand that you and I don't typically use this kind of language, so they completely swap it out in the translations. And even like in the NIV and other ones that you're used to, they say things like, well, if you're stingy or greedy, even though the actual text says, if you have a bad eye or an evil eye. Because see, in the Old Testament, these translators, they understand ancient idioms in the ancient language, and they know that the evil eye or the bad eye is an ancient idiom for being stingy or greedy. And then you get to Matthew 6, and they stop doing that work for you, and they just fling the original metaphor at you, hoping that you can figure it out, which is not very fair. Anyway, he's going from talking about treasuring and heart to now using an idiom about how we see the world around us and whether that vision for how we see the world around us is infected by the wrong kind of treasuring. If it's clouded, clouded or darkened by the wrong kind of treasuring going on. As if to say that if you're not careful in the kind of treasuring that we do in our relationship with the world and the anxieties that we carry around about providing for ourselves, if we're not careful, we will begin to view the world around us for what we can extract from it, for how we can exploit it, for what we can squeeze out of it, from the value that we can pull out of it, rather than for the honoring and loving and collaborating that we can do with the world around us. They're like we, we can actually have our vision affected and begin to see one another and the world around us for what we can extract from it, which is a completely natural thing to do when we are anxious about whether we will have enough, right? Now, um, let me just kind of work this out with a couple of stories, a couple of examples of like the way our, our vision of the world around us can be infected or affected or darkened by all the kind of like economic pressures and the sort of financial context that we live in in the modern world. First, a story from Boston. Uh, years ago, I was out there visiting some friends and I, uh, they, they were working because they had like real jobs and I was um, not working. I was just hanging out. So like I was there during the week and they would go off to their jobs and I was just kind of wandering the city of Boston, which is one of my favorite things to do, just walking a great city. And I'm walking the city streets and guys, I come around a corner, and I see this sign sticking out from a building at a storefront there. And I hear angels sing, and my heart starts racing, and I just, like, start to feel lifted. And what I had stumbled into was a Steinway piano store. 
Some of you are already tracking with me, others are not, that's okay. So I, um, I grew up like piano was my first instrument and I love piano. I have a, a very like emotional, like spiritual relationship with pianos. It's not just that I love music and love playing music and specifically love playing the piano. It's that the piano was like my first home in the world. It's literally like one of the first places I felt safe. For some of you that was like on an athletic field, that has not been my experience. For me, it was like at a piano. I mean like really, it's a place where I learned how to pray because often like, I can pray with words, but sometimes it's better to pray with other things, and it's a place where I learned to pray. It's also a place where I found like, some early success in life, and I felt empowered. In college, uh, when I was going through some very, very acute mental health issues, uh, I was also a music major at the time, and I would go to the same practice room where I was like, practicing and learning my music on the piano, but instead I would literally just shut the door in the practice room, and I would lay on the floor underneath the grand piano, because for so much of my life, like, a piano has been a shelter for me, like emotionally, and spiritually, and I, I literally felt like safer under the shelter of a grand piano than I did in any chapel or shrink's office. Like this is actually what pianos have meant to me in my life. So I'm walking through uh, Boston and I see a Steinway piano store. Now Steinways are uh, like some of the best of the best of the best pianos. Steinways have been made in New York City for like a century or more. Uh, there's a, a reason that both like almost every concert pianist in the world and Billy Joel will only play Steinway pianos. Uh, I'll tell you more about Billy in a minute, but the way they make these things, I mean, the wood alone has to be aged for two years. Literally, they, they find the right wood and they just age it for two years so that it's dried perfectly before they begin bending it into shape. Once it's been dried, a Steinway piano takes nine months of full-time production, almost entirely crafted by hand. It's not automated or manufactured. Nine months of skilled hands making this beautiful thing that will then last for, you know, decades or centuries if it's well cared for, right? Uh, uh, Billy Joel, uh, who I take a lot of inspiration from, um, Billy says the reason he plays a Steinway is that the only piano he's ever played that the more you give it, the more it gives back. And this is actually true. Like, I, I tend to um, treat a piano like a drum set. Like, I, I tend to hit it pretty hard because that's, you know, where all my anger goes. And so uh, the thing that you learn about most pianos is, like, there's a curve where the more you put into it, the more you get out of it to a point. And then this is actually true, bizarrely. There's actually a, a turn in the curve where at some point, if you push too hard on it, if you, if you try to get too much out of it, you actually get a diminishing return on the sound and the quality that it gives you. And Billy says it, and I think he's right. The Steinway is the only piano I've ever found that there's no governor on it. You know what I mean? Like the more you push that gas pedal, the better it gets, right? So I'm walking through Boston and I see this Steinway sign. I'm like, oh man, I wanna, I wanna like see one of these things again. It's been a long time for me since I've seen an actual real piano, not a piece of plastic, you know? So I walk in and there's just a salesman there. And I'm kind of quietly just kind of like, you know, looking around, minding my own business. And the salesman says, well, you can play one if you want. Now, I know some of you might think, yeah, it's a piano showroom. It's what they do. But that's because you're ignorant. You don't understand. This is like, this is like walking into a Porsche dealership and the, and the sales guy like throwing you the keys and be like, take it for a spin, go on the bypass, see how fast it'll go. Like that would never happen, right? But there I am staring not just at any Steinway, but a Steinway Model D. That's eight foot, 11 and three quarter inches. That's the biggest Steinway they make. It's meant to fill up a concert hall the size of Radio City with sound, with no microphones. And it can do it. And he says, go ahead and play it. So I sit down, it's just me and the salesman in the room. And I'm kind of timid at first because I don't want to be imposing. But eventually I get lost in it. And I just spent a couple hours playing this thing. And I, um, it was one of the more like beautiful, spiritual, prayerful experiences I had had in a very long time. Anyway, I finally kind of pull myself away from the piano because I can't afford the, you know, the price of the piano and I don't know where I put it. And I go back to my buddy's apartment and later they get home from work and they ask me, how was your day? 
And I'll never forget what came out of my mouth because I didn't like it and I didn't know where it came from. But here's what I said. I, I didn't say, oh man, I got, I got to get my hands on a, a piece of the most beautiful human craftsmanship. I didn't say, um, man, when my fingers hit the key bed, they just felt the kind of way that like, my heart could sink into the things I was expressing on that piano. I didn't say like, I got to pray through a piano for a couple hours and I, like, I missed that feeling. You know what I said? I said, man, I got to play a $200,000 piano. Does, does your heart kind of sink? Mine did as soon as I said it. I was like, wait, what? why did I do that? Now, I'm not saying there's anything like inherently wrong with the fact that there's a price tag on a piano, but it just struck me like, what a reductive way to talk about this thing, right? When I say it's a $200,000 piano, what am I ultimately saying? That's what it will sell for. I mean, that's the bottom line on a price tag. That's what it will sell for. That's the cash value that can be extracted from, from these natural resources of, of wood and other things that went into this thing, from the human labor, from the years of apprenticeship, from those craftsmen that went into it. When I say it's $200,000 piano, I'm basically just saying that's what can be extracted from all of that beautiful resource and ingenuity and human investment if I sell it. Now, again, I'm not saying it's wrong that things have price tags, but I'm saying in that moment, I was like, oh, man, I feel like, like I, I admitted in that moment that like I actually believe we live in a world where the thing that's most understood or can be communicated about something is what could be extracted from it, right? And I mean, I'm, not like, I'm not saying I did something wrong in that moment, but it's kind of sad, isn't it? Jesus starts by talking about treasuring in heart. And then he says, and by the way, if you're not careful, like watch out because the way that you look at the world around you will be darkened or clouded as the, as the systems that we live in and the economy structure that we live in, as all of that basically says, like, you're mostly a consumer, that's your identity, and things are mostly what they cost in dollars and cents. That, that, that's the sum total of the things and the people around you, and the sum total of you is basically what you can consume. I felt this uh, in such a strange little way uh, in the middle of COVID. Um, this is almost an embarrassing story to tell, but, well, it's real. So uh, in the middle of COVID, I had one of those days when I woke up and I just kind of had this awareness. I'm like, I think I'm like missing a little bit of spring in my step today. I lost a little bit of, of mojo today and I couldn't figure out what it was. I think I was missing something, like a little bit of energy, a little bit of hope that had been with me most days. And can I tell you something? I actually figured out what it was. You know what it was? I didn't have any Amazon packages in the queue that I was waiting for. <laughs> Don't you dare act like I'm the only one. I will own it, but not unless you do too, right? I'm not even kidding. Now, I'm not saying I like fell off a cliff of mental health because of that, but I am saying like there was actually a little shift in my disposition. I related to that day a little bit differently because during COVID, like a lot of you probably, I was, I was ordering a lot of stuff by delivery. And I realized there was this like little 5% of my brain in the back of my brain that was like, you know, coming home from whatever and hoping to see a little package by the front door and like getting to open that package and that little like dopamine hit that you get when a new product shows up. I'm just saying that we live in a world more than ever that is finely tuned to cultivate within us like a disposition toward things around us that is mostly about what, what can we attain or acquire or, or how can we exploit value. It's a very sort of commodified way of relating to everything. This is just in the air around us at more than it has ever been. Not judging you if that's how you feel because I go through it too. I'm just observing it, right? I will say, um, 
this does move toward some pretty disastrous con consequences. When, when we allow our relationship to the world around us to be colonized by commodification, by like extracting everything in terms of value, there are some pretty disastrous consequences that happen in the system at large. Uh, there's a book uh, that I highly recommend by a woman named Lynn Twist. It's called The Soul of Money. And Lynn has spent years uh, as, a, as a global advocate for causes that are meant to alleviate uh, hunger in the world. Um, she's kind of at the front edge of that work, and she's been doing really big and important things for, for decades on that front. What that means, and this is the background on the book that she's written, is that Lynn has spent her entire professional life at two of the most extreme experiences of money. So she has been, uh, if, there's a, if there's a slum in the world, she has not only been in it, but she knows their names. She's in relationship with people who live with the absolute least amount of financial resources of anyone on the planet. She's been with them for decades. And in raising money to alleviate hunger in the world, she has been among the private jet set. I mean, the, the wealthiest of the wealthiest of the wealthiest. And she writes this whole book as an observation on what she has learned from all of that. And there's, there's so much in it, and I'm going to say more about it next week. I highly recommend it. But back to this thing about what happens when we just see the world as a commodity for what we can take from it. Uh, she says this. In the name of money, humankind has done immense damage to Mother Earth. We've destroyed rainforests, dammed and decimated rivers, clear-cut redwoods, overfished rivers and lakes, and poisoned our soil with chemical waste from industry and agriculture. We've marginalized whole segments of our society, forced the poor into housing projects, allowed urban ghettos to form, exploited whole nations to get cheaper labor, and witnessed the fall of thousands, in fact, millions of people many of them young, caught up in selling drugs for money, hurting others and wasting their own promise in a life of crime, enslavement, or incarceration. We perpetuated age-old traditions that assign men and women different and unequal access to money and the power we place in it, subjugating women and distorting men's expectations and obligations with their privileged access to it. Now, we've just gone from some pretty pedestrian anecdotes about me and Amazon to some pretty sobering consequences, but do you, do you see the thread? Like, if we allow the money thing to shape us in such a way that we see the world around us for what we can consume in it and how we can extract value from it, if that's like the pr primary way that we relate, well, then the next thing that Jesus says is probably true. This is uh, the next line in his teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, we'll say more the next two weeks about the fact that this doesn't mean money's bad unless it becomes a master, right? So, so we're going to say more about the, the good and beautiful and useful ways that money can be a part of our life in the next two weeks. But right now, we're talking about the heart and the fact that if, if we're not careful, like all the best things that we are meant to live for and give ourselves to, all of our best energies in the world are going to be all bound up, tied up, restricted, restrained by the way that money works on us, the way that, that money affects us, the way that our relationship with money is shaping us and forming us. And then from all, from all of that sort of analysis and diagnosis, Jesus then makes this strange move. Next slide. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about what your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Next slide. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. 
If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So don't worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So there's the movement. Jesus says, first of all, we do our treasuring, our investing, our budgeting, our spending. And the heart is tied up in that whether you know it or not. Good news is maybe all of our treasuring and investing and spending can be a way of getting curious about what's actually going on inside. Also, like I said, it could be a great way to get curious about the system that we've built and the problems with that system. Then he says, like, be careful of the way that you look at the world and the people around you because your vision might be... Uh, clouded or darkened by the way that money works on you and you start to see everything around you for what you could exploit or take from it. And then he says, alternatively, you could learn the way of trust. And rather than money be an expression of our anxieties, it could be an expression of our trust. Uh, one thing I have learned over and over again, I, I've not had Lynn Twist's experience of the far extremes and the amount of depth she's had in those places. But I have kind of had this bizarre exposure in the last 10, 15 years of my life. I've not been in, you know, every slum in the world, but I've been in a few and I've known some of their names and heard their stories and seen the character and context of lives who live with the fewest financial resources on the planet. And I've spent a little bit of time on, among the private jet set. Like I've been around people who have, the phrase more money than God comes to mind. You know what I mean? Just like, just enormous amounts of wealth. And one thing that is abundantly clear to me is that the happiest people I know are not those who have the most. They are the ones who trust the most. Now, that's not meant to minimize your financial challenges. I know we got people in the room who are caring for their kids and the child support has not been paid. I know that's real. And if you're having stress about that challenge, please don't hear this sermon as a condemnation on you. Uh, I, I know there are people who like lost a job through no fault of your own and you're not sure how you're going to make it work. Please don't hear this sermon as a condemnation on the negative balance in your checking account. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is however you, like whatever comes up, however you relate to all of those challenges, whatever comes up is an opportunity to get curious. And that when you get curious, you might be invited to probe the waters of trust and faith and see if there's an invitation there to, to, to believe that there's something deeper and truer about you than your bank account and the things that you can acquire with your bank account. Um, I wanna offer uh, a challenge for the week, a way to get a little more real about this, and then one more uh, brief note from scripture before we sing a song. Uh, the challenge is simply this. If, if the goal is just get curious, like what is your treasuring teaching you about your heart? What if you just spent the week doing an inventory on your money life? There's a few ways you could do this. One would be just actually pull out a piece of paper and write down all the feelings that come up when you think about money budgets and income. Just put them on the page and get curious about them. Don't judge them. Just get curious about them and maybe ask God if God wants to show you anything going on there. The other invitation I'm going to push further on this next week is to actually take note of all the money coming in and all the money going out. I know some of us, uh, we're like wired for spreadsheets and so we do this all the time. Others, this would be a brand new exercise. You could go like through the last 30 days, open up your checking account ledger and like look at every single thing, make note of it, look at your credit cards, look at your income like some kind of inventory, and once you put it all on the page, get a picture of it in front of you, and then just like make some observations, not judgments, because shame and curiosity are enemies, and the more shame you feel, the less curious you can be.
And curiosity is where things get interesting. So just get curious about it. Like it, for me, for example, I could like put all my spending on the page, which I do most months, and I could look at it and I'd be like, you know, if I kind of step away and get like objective about it, I could just be like, oh, apparently Jason has an Amazon problem, <laughs> right? No judgment, just observation. That's curious. Jason, you have an Amazon problem. Let's talk about that, right? See what I mean? Like, that could be really, really helpful. Then probe that, all right? So what's going on there? And sometimes it's as practical as, like, get the app off your phone, right? Or sometimes it's really deep, like, man, what are you solving for every time you click buy now? All that's in, in, in fair play, right? So do an inventory, uh, some look at your finances this week, and that'll help us next week when we go further into it. We're going to ask all of you to bring your budgets in, and then Matt and I will evaluate them. <laughs> Just kidding. And then I want to set up a, a reflection through song that Mariah and the team are going to share with us. Um, uh, there's a moment in the Old Testament um, that comes from a time in human history that probably predates modern currency. So this actually goes back to before human beings had invented money in the form that we use it in today. And in that time before, like, governmental currencies as a way of exchanging value. In that time before that, there were other ways that human beings channeled all of their hope and anxiety about whether they would be provided for. So yeah, they might have worked a trade, they might have worked in the field, they might have grown food or raised livestock. But then, just like now, they were painfully aware that there were factors beyond their control that would affect whether they could provide for themselves that given day or week or month or year. And in this ancient era in our species history that predates uh, modern currency, there were other ways that might seem more primitive that they would have channeled all that, although I'd argue we're pretty primitive these days too some, in some ways. And um, when you recognize that like, providing for your life is not entirely in your own hands, you're probably going to try to appease whatever forces it is that seem to have control over whether you're provided for, Right? Well, to appease whatever those forces are, the, the deities or God, however they think of that, the thing that human beings seem to come up with pretty early in our history is sacrifice. Let's try to like, you know, literally get an offering up there to those forces, to those places where our lives are either provided for or they are not. Well, there's of course hierarchies of sacrifice and the more desperate or anxious you are about whether these forces will provide for you or not, the further up that hierarchy of sacrifice you might go until you get to what seems to be um, the most dramatic and perhaps most tragic form of sacrifice in that ancient time, which was uh, human sacrifice, specifically the, the offering of one's firstborn son. So when you read a story about a man named Abraham who is called by God to sacrifice his son Isaac on the mountaintop, you are reading a story about human anxieties, about being um, okay in the world, and wh whether, whether God or the gods are for us or against us. And it seems that this particular story, where this particular God named Yahweh asked Abraham to go to the mountain to sacrifice the son, it seems that God is using the story of child sacrifice so that God can subvert the story of child sacrifice, that he's sort of getting down inside this idea so that he can break it apart. And so God invites uh, Abraham up to the mountain, and Abraham thinks that he's there to do a very normal thing for people in his time which is when your anxiety is at its, at, at its worst, when you don't know if tomorrow will be provided for, you offer the last thing that you could possibly think to offer, which is your firstborn son, hoping that it will appease the forces and they will, they will decide to provide for you again, right? So Abraham's up on top of the mountain, and at the very last moment, God provides a sacrificial animal rather than Abraham sacrificing his son. And there in that moment, Abraham names that mountain 
And the name that he gives that mountain is Jireh. J-I-R-E-H, Jireh. And in, in loose sort of paraphrase, it means God has provided for me. But in literal translation, it means God has seen. Which brings us back to Jesus and the evil eye and the ways that we look upon the world. And it actually suggests that God might be the one, uh, the one life that's capable of seeing everything, not for what can be exploited or taken from it. Give me your firstborn son. For, rather, for, for how everything can be loved. Everything can be honored. Everyone can be given to and so uh, Mariah and team have found this song that uses the word gyra, which comes from that story, um, from an era that predates money, but that still has all the same anxieties about whether we will be cared for or not. And we thought this might be a good song for us to sing uh, today and in the few weeks ahead and maybe even in the year ahead. So uh, first, you're invited to just uh, stay in your seat for a moment and reflect as the team sings this song over us. And then you'll be invited, if you'd like, uh, to join us in singing it together.
to offer a disclaimer earlier, so I'll just throw it in at the end here. Um, this job I do up here, integrity really matters. Uh, the good news is there's two ways to have integrity. One is you either live up to everything you're saying. The second is you admit when you don't. And let me just be very clear, I am um, very much sort of a humbled student of the things we're talking about in this series, not like an expert practitioner. So I wouldn't want to give some kind of false impression here. Uh, we're very much in this together and we're gonna learn together and see if we can grow together in this direction. Um, and that direction is that we might become people whose heart and treasuring are aligned. That we would give all that we are to the best and most worthy things. That the life of God would be lived in us and through us, even in the ways that we spend and that we would see money as the symptom that it is to know our hearts, uh, the tool that it is to work our hearts and to make a better and more beautiful world together. May grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week.